This is a Historic England podcast, sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. Hello, I'm Dr. Suzanne Lipscomb from the University of Roehampton, and you're listening to Irreplaceable, a history of England in 100 places. In this series, we explore the amazing places that together tell the story of England. Ten expert judges have worked across ten categories and thousands of your nominations to compile a list of 100 places which have helped make England the country it is today. If you're enjoying the series, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you're listening on iTunes, please rate this podcast and leave a review. Today we reveal our final three art, architecture and sculpture locations that have been chosen by our judge, BBC Arts editor Will Gompertz. Joining me in the studio to discuss them are my guests, Dayan Sujic, the director of the Design Museum, and Duncan Wilson, chief executive of Historic England. For our eighth location in this category of art, architecture and sculpture, we're going back in time to the Anglo-Saxon period to explore an awe-inspiring royal burial site. In 1939, Mrs Edith Pretty, a landowner at Suttonhoo in Suffolk, asked an archaeologist, Basil Brown, to investigate the largest of several odd-looking mounds on her property. Inside, he made one of the most spectacular archaeological discoveries of all time. Why did Will Gompertz choose Suttonhoo? Suttonhoo is just such a, a great visit. It doesn't matter if, if you're with the kids or on your own. It's sort of enlivening and remarkable. It's a step back to the foundations, I suppose, in many ways, of what is now considered to be British culture. And it's an amazing horde of um, masks and swords and relics of, of a Saxon culture. And these great objects and treasures from our Anglo-Saxon past, which is kind of the, the, the basis for the culture we see today, are just a sort of revelation. Because although we think we've come a long way and, and we've progressed amazingly, actually this stuff is, is still pretty incredible. It would still be usable today. And, and that's sort of that wonderful metal helmet, which almost reminds me actually of, of sort of a, a late Picasso head. And so I just think that Sutton Hoo, if you really want to understand Britain and get a grip of where we have come from, it has come from, you need to go to Sutton Hoo and see where it all started. The discoveries at Sutton Hoo transformed our understanding of the Anglo-Saxon period. So what sort of things were found? Sutton Hoo is, is known for many things, but probably principally for the richness of the grave goods that accompanied the king that was buried there, whom we believe to be Redwalt from the 7th century. And the grave goods are not just rich in themselves, they indicate an enormous range of contacts with India or Sri Lanka for the garnets, Byzantine silverware, and a lifestyle of feasting, and the artifacts of war, shields, spears, all in all possibly indicating that lifestyle that was illustrated so well in, in Beowulf, the, the famous poem of the 8th century. And I think it was a, it, it's a kind of glimpse into that world that you very rarely get. I mean, the Anglo-Saxons didn't leave behind buildings that are recognisable as buildings except for one or two parts of one or two churches by and large to find this huge structure buried in in a mound amazingly fortunately with an excavator who recognized what he had because it would have been so easy in 1939 for whatever reason not to have been able to recognize this was a, a ship burial and then recover the artifacts which were fragmentary was an amazing piece of good fortune which we are still I'm sure all grateful for. The burial itself must have been quite a feat of engineering. How much do we know about the amount of work that was carried out to prepare the tomb, the sort of size of the thing? 
Well, the ship was uphill of the River Deben, and the rise in the ground is about 100 feet higher than the river, so that it was quite a feat to drag a 90-foot-long ship uphill all that way and then embed it in a mound with a with a probably a purpose-built hut like a wheelhouse in the middle to hold the, the grave. But as with Stonehenge, we should never underestimate the skills of our predecessors and no. ancestors. To me, it gives an insight into an England before there was such a thing as England, and a reminder that many people have made this landscape and, and this culture. And that sense of understanding the layers beneath the surface to actually look at mounds and understand that they are man-made is so fascinating and so important. It gives us amazing insight into this period, the so-called Dark Ages, because it shows us how illuminated they actually were. The beauty, the craftsmanship of the objects, but it also gives us insight into, you know, just how skilled these people were. These people were highly, highly trained, highly um, competent skillsmen, and what we see is incredible craftsmanship. It is a window on an ephemeral world which we know not much about despite all the archaeological discoveries we've made, including perhaps this, the, the greatest of them. But this is, is unusual in the sense that it gives you all the artefacts associated with life as well as with the, the ritual of death. And what you were saying about the connections to other places around the world, um, it does make clear that actually there is sort of no... Um, native English culture that is, uh, you know, cut off from influences from outside. We have this sense that from the very beginnings of, of the story of this country, it has been uh, rooted in connections around the world. Humans have always moved. And every time you find a settlement, uh, you find cultures from many different places. If you look at uh, some of the Roman cities or for um, Alexandria, these are all places made up with communities from everywhere. If you think about London, it was, of course, settled initially by Italian immigrants uh, before there was such yeah. a thing as England. And you see that where materials come from in trade, in movement. Uh, the idea of settlement was never actually that fixed. On one level, we're all immigrants. I like the idea of calling the Romans Italian immigrants. <laughs> well, what has happened to Sutton Hoo since those excavations in the 1930s? Well, the helmet and the treasures are, of course, one of the principal displays of the period in the British Museum where millions of people see them. Of course, the, the mounds themselves, the place, is in the custody of the National Trust with a new visitor centre, and I think you can get a much better understanding of how it came into being from visiting the place too. Well, we'll leave the so-called Dark Ages behind to move to our next location in the art, architecture and sculpture category, and for this we're heading to the coast. The Minac Theatre in Cornwall perches on the side of a cliff overlooking the Atlantic Ocean. This extraordinary open-air amphitheatre looks like it should date back to Roman times, but in fact it is much younger than it appears. So why has Will Gompert selected the Minac Theatre? The, the Minac Theatre is, is just a cracking example of British eccentricity, which turns out to be absolutely Brilliant. I'm not, I can't imagine it happening in any other country. So in the 1930s, Rowena Cade has this house uh, on the on the seafront in Cornwall. And she envisages it as being an amphitheatre. You know, think of Greek or Roman amphitheatres and sees that within the landscape of her grounds of this house and starts to think about making it into a theatrical space where you go and watch shows outside. Needless to say, the first show she put on was Shakespeare's A Tempest, which is kind of perfect for that particular 
environment, but also perfect that it's a great English playwright in an external space dealing with a story of the sea and of eccentricity, which is what you get plenty of uh, in in the Tempest. And I just think that if you're going to enjoy theatre and if you're going to enjoy Shakespeare, where better to go than see it outside at the Minac in Cornwall? It must be the most exciting location for a theatre in England. The Minac attracts more than 80,000 playgoers every year, as well as more than 150,000 visitors who come to see this arresting site during the day. We join them to find out more. Uh, my name's Phil Jackson, the theatre manager of the Minac Theatre. Well, here we are on the cliffs uh, in Porthcurno. We're in the, uh, the main auditorium. This is open-air theatre at its most open-air. The Atlantic is just in front of us here, back in the 20s. This was just a piece of wild cliff until Rowena Cade uh, came to live here um, with her mother. They bought, built a house on the cliff just above us and uh, she got involved in local theatre. Uh, she was very creative, she was a seamstress and she got involved with a local amateur company making costumes and they got a bit adventurous and uh, did a production of A Midsummer Night's Dream in a wood and then the year after they thought, a couple of years after they thought, well it'd be nice to do another one and we'd do The Tempest. And this was her cliff garden. She gradually started to, uh, to terrace the cliff and make it into a garden. And they thought, well, the ideal place to do the tempest would be on the cliffs. And so Rowena, with her gardener back in the thir- uh, 31, terraced out this bit of cliff, built a stage at the bottom, and they put on a production of the tempest. She had a, a wonderful gardener called Billy Rawlings. She always used to say that Billy could cut granite like a knife through butter. So now we're sat in a theatre which, since 1932, has been housing or putting on shows um, and now it's rather big, uh, and we now get 100,000 people to watch shows every year. The theatre is a, a bit like a Roman theatre. A lot of people think it is an ancient, they come across it and think it's an old Roman theatre that somebody's uh, smartened up. Well, actually, in some ways, it's more akin to a Greek theatre than a Roman, because the Roman theatres tended to be inland um, and had back walls, um, whereas the Greek theatres tend to be more open and, and not a back wall, and, and sometimes on the coast like this is. Building an open-air theatre in the UK is probably not the, one of the most sensible things to do. But we are lucky here, right where we are, on the cl- coast near the West End that um, the weather changes so quickly and it doesn't have a chance. We're in a little little microclimate, so we quite often get away with um, the weather. She built the theatre in this bit of cliff because it was naturally shaped. All she had to do was scrape out, I say all she had to do, (laughs) but she had to scrape out all of the rocks and material that were in the cliff and to level it out. And it's actually got a natural amphitheatre shape, except that it's got no back wall. The Atlantic is the back wall. Uh, And it started off just being a grassy stage and grassy terraces. We still retain a lot of grass terraces, but as the theatre became busier, uh, she had to concrete over the stage because if you've had six weeks of theatre productions uh, in the summer and you've got rain or sun and you've got dust and mud on the stage and so the more shows she did the more stress that it was put on the theatre which is why we now get a lot of concrete seats and a concrete stage in it. So as, a, as an experience it's a bit of a challenge some people have called it uh, an extreme sport coming to watch a show here at the minute but it's an experience and that's what it is it's a hard theatre it's not the easiest theatre to watch a show in but it is glorious and you get the, the right evenings and most of the time as I say we're very lucky we're standing here now with the wind blowing and the rain coming down on us and you wouldn't think it's going to be a great night but tonight I'm pretty sure that we're going to have a beautiful evening sunny evening uh, no wind uh, and <laughs> but it's difficult to imagine that now but if you're sat here with the wind driving the rain into your face it's not the most pleasant experience but it is an experience and that's what coming to the Minic is all about it's open air theatre and this is open air theatre and it's most open air 
we can hear the sea crashing behind us. We're right on the edge. And if you're here, it's very difficult for actors, actually. They can sit here waiting for their queue, and suddenly the dolphins go past. And they can, it's very easy to get distracted and, uh, and miss a queue. So they have to be right on it. It was a production we had here last weekend. And it's a beautiful sunny afternoon. All of a sudden, the pot of dolphins went past. And all the actors must have seen was the audience's hands pointing out to sea above their heads and wonder what on earth is going on. And everybody suddenly... <laughs> attention totally taken to this pod of dolphins going back so this is a problem for the actors as well when something like that happens from the 80s to, to make it practical to make it viable really so it became a tourist attraction as well because people wanted to come and see it they were beginning to learn about it and, and know about this place and so that was how that income helped the theatre um, finance itself and since then it's gone from strength to strength and I guess it's the days of the internet now have actually broadcast it far and wide around the world. And so it now become world famous. And uh, we'll have a quarter of a million people through here this year. That was Phil Jackson, the theatre manager. Rowena Cade, the lady behind Minak Theatre, was born in Derbyshire in 1893. She was the daughter of a mill owner and apparently first took to the stage at the age of eight. After the First World War, she moved to Cornwall and built a house overlooking the sea near Porthcurno. In such a remote location, entertainment had to be homemade, and she became involved with a local theatre group which staged an open-air production of Midsummer Night's Dream in 1929. For their next project, The Tempest, the theatre group needed a more dramatic stage. Rowena initially offered her garden, but decided instead to build a stage into the cliff beneath her house. So how did she go about building an amphitheatre into the cliff? Well, it was very much a DIY project and uh, a remarkable achievement for that. Um, Initially, I think she just hacked out uh, enough of the the rock to make make places people could perch on and a stage. But then she and her gardener, Billy Rawlings, began to make it a bit more sophisticated with cement, with Celtic designs in it. Uh, But it's, its essential quality for me, is the fact that it is quite organic and of the place. It's not it, it's over-engineered. A, it's a wonderfully eccentric English amateur operation which yes. works magnificently because of its extraordinary setting. Um, it is very much like a slightly grand back garden which has been turned into a public space mm. with a fantastic setting and that is so English and so seductive. It sounds like the construction must have been terribly difficult. I mean, you know, just sort of thinking of uh, lumping bags of sand up, you know, up to the beach to mix with the cement in order to make a, a flat surface. It, it indicates for me the power of place and, and, and you know, how... Uh, constru- a relatively modest construction in an extraordinary natural environment to produce something that is ephemeral but will last in everybody's memory is just as powerful as some of these great architectural places. As an experience, of course, there is always that frisson of wondering whether it's going to rain um, and, you know, whether the dolphins are going to appear in the bay and all of that, which I'm sure adds to it. It's just much less self-contained than a normal theatre. There is nothing else like it anywhere. It is a bit of a hostage to the weather, isn't it? A hostage to fortune. I mean, it looks like it'd be more at home on the Amalfi Coast. But perhaps what you're saying is that adds to the charm, the element of danger. I think it probably helps you select the repertoire. I mean, The Tempest was the first production, and that was obviously um, not just because of, of, of the reference to the weather, but the fact that it was on a rocky coast. I think you would choose works that the environment kind of reinforced. Macbeth, perhaps, on a bad day. Macbeth. 
Our final location in the art, architecture and sculpture category is the Tate Modern in London. This is a building that makes a special contribution to the London skyline. Just across the River Thames is one of our earlier nominations in this category, St Paul's Cathedral. And I like the fact that two of our locations in this category are connected across the Thames. Will Gompertz tells us why the Tate Modern makes his list of ten. What I particularly like about it is it's an old um, power station which was designed by Giles Gilbert Scott. And it went into disuse and disrepair and was then reinvigorated and reimagined in the late 1990s by the Swiss architects Herzog de Muron into sort of a, a place for the people. It has an airiness and a welcome which I don't think you will find anywhere else in any other museum in the world. And it actually, in a way, Tate Modern has transformed our relationship with art. Before Tate Modern, you could argue we were more interested in the art of the past. With Tate Modern, I think we've become more interested in the art of the present, the art which is made in our times. It made the UK in general and London specifically like the art centre of the world. And suddenly, really, the landscape of Britain with the Hepworth in Wakefield and the uh, Turner Contemporary in Margate and many other buildings which have had the confidence to be commissioned because of Tate Modern and our interest in modern art have arrived. And, uh, it, and all of them have that same sort of friendly welcome, which starts with Tate Modern. And I love it because it matches a modern idea, a contemporary idea, which is art for the masses, with the architecture of great contemporary architects, Herzog and Miram from uh, Switzerland, with, I think, one of my favourite British architects and designers, Giles Gilbert Scott, who not only made the original Tate Modern, but is also the man behind the red telephone box. So what's so special about the Tate Modern? I see Tate Modern as being um, almost a, an area of London. It was, it's now being built in um, three phases. Um, the original, of course, was a, power, a working power station. Uh, it became technologically redundant. And what had once been seen as a quite an ambitious industrial eyesore was now turned into part of London's heritage, part of its identity, and turned very effectively into a, an extraordinarily successful museum of contemporary art. Until Tate Modern opened, there was a sense that contemporary art was um, something which the tabloid press mocked gently. It was something for a very small number of people who perhaps wore Japanese suits and had important haircuts. <laughs> and what Tate did was to actually create an amazing public space full of contemporary art, full of crowds, which actually made this art form work for a very large public audience. And it became almost stifled by its own success. Five million people a year were trooping through this building. And then it began to expand. It's actually become a place in which you can go and see art in one place or have a meal somewhere else or go shopping or go and meet your friends. And to me, that's not a building. It's a part of a city, a living part of the city. I mean, I think one of the remarkable things about it is the way we now take for granted the reuse of industrial buildings for this kind of thing and it was very pioneering in that sense I, I wonder how many people coming to it today were it not for the chimney would think that this was built as an art gallery I mean it is and, and it works extraordinarily well because of the the huge cavernous spaces that, that can accommodate large works of art we should talk about what's inside the building as well the art that it accommodates and um, draws people to see a previous generation of directors and trustees at the Tate had had trouble coming to terms with some of the more challenging works of contemporary art in the 1930s and 40s. There were huge gaps in its collection, not a great deal of Picasso, um, 
not a great deal of some of those other continental masters. So one of the things that they had to do with the permanent collection was to find a different way to hang it. So it's now shown thematically rather than chronologically. Um, and it also has a very dynamic uh, programme of temporary shows. And every year there's the remarkable Turbine Hall Commission, uh, which began with Louise Bourgeois' gigantic spider. It started Olafur Ellison's career, really, by when he did a huge piece showing a sun in that space. And it really showed that art doesn't need words. It's just a very powerful social experience. In fact, it speaks to many of the places we've considered in this category in that it really seems to be about art for all. How important do you think it has been culturally in bringing art to everyone? There's a fantastic sense of arrival with the Turbine Hall, which I think kind of relaxes people into thinking this is somewhere you're supposed to be rather than somewhere you you are a, a visitor to following a prescribed route. You're allowed to mill around. It's a very unprecious way to show yes. art. Uh, it was very brave. It changed the way people saw things. Another amazing place, and the last in our art, architecture and sculpture top ten. It must have been a very difficult process for Will Gompertz to choose just ten, so before we go, we gave him time to mention anywhere he thought ought to be added to this category, his honourable mention, and why. I'm going to go <laughs> for... Dun, dun, dun. My place of work. I'm going to go for Broadcasting House in Upper Regent Street. There's two parts. There's New Broadcasting House, which was added to Broadcasting House five or six years ago. But the original Broadcasting House which is an Art Deco building, which looks like the, the prow of a ship. As you go up um, past Nash's uh, All Souls Church, you, there you see Old Broadcasting House, which is now called. On the outside, there's an Eric Gill sculpture from The Tempest. It's Prospero and Ariel. And there's inside, there's another fantastic Eric Gill um, sculpture, which, which is by the lifts. The lifts themselves are fabulous because there's a marble wall and then there's this brass frame around the lifts and then the old original BBC logo. And it is, like, it is in a way, it's going back in time, but, but also it kind of sums up what the BBC was in those days and I think still is now. It's just made so well and it's so much of its time. It feels contemporary now. It must have felt incredibly contemporary then, but it just feels so solid, so honest, so British. And then as you go up the building, there's a council chamber, this wonderful wood-lined uh, space uh, where Lord Reith would hold the meetings for all the trustees of the BBC. And the building itself, looking as it does like a prow of a ship, suggesting that here we are, the British Broadcasting Corporation, going out into the world to, to voyage, to share, to journey, to meet and to greet. I think it's just the most wonderful building and the most wonderful place to work. Well, that is it for the theme of art, architecture and sculpture. In this category, we've covered the Angel of the North in Gateshead, Yorkshire Sculpture Park in Wakefield, Barbara Hepworth Museum and Sculpture Garden in Cornwall, St Paul's Cathedral in London, Coventry Cathedral in Coventry, Chatsworth House in Derbyshire, Kelmscott Manor in Gloucestershire, Suttonhoo in Suffolk, the Minnex Theatre in Cornwall and Tate Modern on the banks of the Thames in London. If you think we've missed anything, tell us about the locations that make your list using the hashtag 100places. Thank you to my guests, Dayan Sudic and Duncan Wilson and our judge, Will Gompertz. I'm Suzanne Lipscomb. Join me next time as we uncover 10 power and protest locations for our next episode of Historic England in 100 Places. This is a Historic England podcast sponsored by Ecclesiastical Insurance Group. When it feels irreplaceable, 
Trust Ecclesiastical.